Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Reminder, as we turn to God's Word this morning and we look to Mark chapter 5, we're in the second half of this chapter, and coming to the end of what has been a, a short section covering three events in the life of Jesus, all emphasizing His power and divinity. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus' complete control over nature, such that the wind and waves were silenced at a mere word. And last week, we saw Jesus' absolute authority over the supernatural world as legions of Satan's forces fled at a word from Jesus. But we aren't done yet. So Jesus is our strength and our salvation. He is a rock of refuge for anything that we can face in life, natural or supernatural, that we have learned. But what about when life itself is threatened? In life, yes, we have found a great help, but what about in death? Can Jesus do anything about that? And that is what brings us to the third section, or third event in this section, and we'll read it in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Would you read from God's Word with me? And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. They were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Father, we thank you for this text of your word which you have given us, and we ask that you would use it to draw us to Jesus, that we might know him better and find salvation in him this morning. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. My guess is that just about everyone here has heard the quip that there are only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. And of course, the taxes part is the butt of the joke, but the death part is the one that really impacts our life. A Jesus who can heal a withered hand is all well and good. A Jesus that can stop a storm or cast out a demon is a blessing. But a healed hand will still die. A rescued and restored one will still go to the grave. And we have no guarantees. Death comes to old and to young, to rich and to poor, sometimes when we expect it, sometimes when we least expect it, as we have been reminded with great grief in recent days. You know, there's a famous psychiatrist who worked at Stanford University, Irvin Yalom is his name, and he once wrote that the inevitability of death And the essential meaningless of every part of our life, even its pleasures, because life ends in death, is the great driving fact of every person's existence and every response to life. And so while the stilled storm and the drowned demons certainly point to Jesus' power, it is his authority over death itself that climactically magnifies who he is and brings real hope this morning. For the third time in as many days now, Jesus' disciples and those around him are brought face to face with the Son of God in all of his power and majesty and forced to ask the question, who is this that wind and waves obey, that legions of demons obey, that even death itself is overcome by his words? And yet, As we look through this text, even as it points us to Jesus' power and person, this text uniquely focuses on faith as the grace that enables us to receive Christ's healing and resurrecting power. And that is its main point, faith as the grace that enables us to receive Christ's power. And so faith will be our focus this morning as well. And the first point that I want us to see this morning is the need for faith in the lives of these two individuals. Jesus, as the story begins, has granted the request of the pig-herding townspeople. He has left the eastern side of the lake and traveled back across to the western side where most of his ministry has been taking place. And once again, as soon as he steps out of the boat, he is immediately surrounded by crowds and is followed by crowds even there on the beach But one person cuts through the crowd and falls at his feet. It's Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. 
Now, the ruler of the synagogue in a community was not a, an official priest or a rabbi. He was a, a lay person who was given charge and maintenance over the local synagogue. And this community leader is facing a significant need. His 12-year-old little girl is on the verge of death. Now, we're not told here what the disease was. We're not told the cause. We're not told how long she had been sick. We don't know how many doctors may have been called on. We don't know what prayers have been offered. We don't know any of that. But what we do know is that she is at death's door. There is nothing left to do. And Jairus is desperate. And in his need, Jairus comes to Jesus and asks him to come and lay hands on his daughter that she might be made well and might live and not die. Now, at this stage, we're not told much about Jairus' heart. We don't know what was going on in his heart. It seems likely that he did not fully know who Jesus was or what all would be involved in saving faith at this point. But Jairus does have faith. He has a realization of his desperate need, and he realizes that Jesus is his only hope to meet that need, and he comes to Jesus. And Jesus, in his gracious kindness, immediately goes with Jairus. But the huge crowd going with him follows him along the way, and in the midst of that throng, we find a second person who expresses faith in Jesus. She's on the opposite end of the social spectrum. She's not a community leader. She is a sick, unclean woman driven into poverty by her illness. And you see the categorical terms used to describe her here, that she has suffered much from many physicians, spent all she had, and gained nothing. Having done all that there was to do in human strength, she was worse, not better. But she too has heard of Jesus. And once again, we don't know exactly what is going on in her heart. Was she a bit superstitious, just wanting to touch Jesus' clothes? Did she care about Jesus at all? Or did she just want a miracle? We're not given answers to those questions, but she does have the seed of faith. A realization that she is in desperate need. And that Jesus is the only one who can meet that need. And she comes to Jesus. And Jesus, in his gracious kindness, heals her. And I want you to just consider the situations here because, in fact, the entire section of the gospel that we have been in has focused on Jesus' divine power employed to save the desperate. Those in boats already filling with water and on the verge of sinking. A man with a legion of demons that such that no one could control him, not even with chains. A daughter ready to die. A woman impoverished who has tried everything and only gotten to worse. Gotten worse. And and you'll notice that nearly all of these people are not just in desperate situations, but they're all unclean as well, with the exception of the disciples on the boat. The man was filled with an unclean spirit in the tombs. The woman had a flow of blood that would make her unclean. You have a dead body in the room. And so they were helpless and hopeless, but they were also cut off from the presence of God by their uncleanness. Their situations are as dire as could be. And some of you I know know the, the feeling of being helpless, of being driven to the end of yourself in pain and grief and loss. But the reality is whether you know that feeling or not, 
every one of us begins helpless and hopeless. Our pursuit of sin, our enslavement to sin, leaves us all condemned. We read that all creation groans, that we groan in our bodies as suffering presses us and sin brings us under the curse of physical death that we cannot escape and spiritual separation from God that we have no avenue, no hope, no way to cross. We are all, as Ephesians Ephesians 2.12 puts it, without hope and without God in the world. And the question is just whether we realize how desperate our situation is or not. But that, in that situation, is where faith comes in. Pastor Cameron Cole faced his worst several years ago when his three-year-old son died in his sleep. And writing a few years after the event, Cole wrote this. He said, very often people misunderstand what faith is. They think that faith is our part of the bargain in order to be saved. But this misunderstands the nature of faith. Faith in Christianity is an all-out, full-on, 100% rescue. In the face of our worst, faith is not us believing in God so that he will help you rise again. No, faith is nothing other than a desperate cry because there is nothing you can do. Asking Jesus to take you out of the miry bog and set your feet on the rock. That is what faith is. And when Jairus and this woman turn to Jesus in faith, they turn to one who is so ready to receive faith. J.C. Ryle, that 19th century Writer and pastor put it this way. He said, The gods of the heathen are terrible and mighty in battle. They are the strong man's patrons and the warrior's friends. But the Savior of the Christian is gentle, easy to be entreated, the healer of the brokenhearted, the refuge of the weak and the helpless, the comforter of the distressed, the sick man's best friend. And is not this just the Savior that we all need? And so may we all, in our need, in all its various details, come with the same faith to the same Jesus as these two did in their desperate need. So this is the need for faith in our text. But next we want to look at the test of faith that Jesus gave to both of these individuals. Because you'll notice that Jesus does not stop, wave a magic wand over them and send them dancing off happily ever after. Jesus tested their faith to refine it. Look at the woman first. The woman knew she was healed immediately and undoubtedly what she wanted more than anything was just to quietly melt back into the crowd and privately rejoice in the miracle she had received. But Jesus does not let her do that. He turns around and asks, who touched me? Now on the face of it, this question is ridiculous. A few years ago, my family and I were down in Williamsburg, Virginia, visiting uh, my sister for Thanksgiving, and we decided to go to Bush Gardens, the amusement park there, which was opening for Christmas Town on the day after Thanksgiving. And so we went along, I believe, with every single human being within two hours of Bush Gardens. And I've never been in crowds like this. We were largely only able to shuffle along in the mobs as we went. And we were jostled and and bumped and touched by every single person there. It was very unpleasant uh, of an experience. 
And I think of that experience when I think of Jesus in the crowds here. They have mobbed him as soon as he gets out the boat and he's been jostled and bumped and then he turns around and says, who touched me? And his disciples, you can almost hear the, the mockery or confusion in their voice and they're saying, Jesus, hundreds of people have touched you. What do you mean, who touched me? But Jesus, of course, knew exactly who touched him and he wanted to test this woman's faith to clarify her faith. She had the miracle she wanted, yes, but would she realize that her hope was not found in the healing, but in the one who had healed her? This woman, of course, had come to Jesus, but did she know what she had in Jesus? And so Jesus asked, who touched me, to draw her out and draw her to himself? And you see how much of a test this was for her because it says that she stepped forward with fear and trembling. You see the the terror of her heart as she steps out of the crowd and comes into the presence of the Son of the Most High God to confess to Him and to confess publicly before all the crowds who she was and what she had done and what Jesus had done for her. But that is what Jesus called her to do, and she stepped forward. Of course, all this took time. It took time for Jesus to stop and and ask who touched him and question the woman and hear her account and respond to her. And in and of itself, this pause, this time, was the test of Jairus' faith. Because he knows his daughter is on the verge of death. He has only minutes to spare. And so you can imagine his state of mind. As a father, I can only imagine the anguish of his heart as he's he's saying to himself, well, this woman's been sick for 12 years. She can wait another hour. My daughter is ready to die. And then the worst happens. Servants come from his home and tell him that it is too late. There is no need to bother the teacher anymore. His daughter is dead. But Jesus overhears the comment, and he turns and looks at Jairus, in the eye and he says do not fear only believe now the tense of the greek verb here is significant it is a present imperative which demands an ongoing action or a state of being not just a one-time decision so jesus is is not saying to jairus uh, don't fear jairus just make a decision in this moment to believe he's saying no jairus keep on believing You need to continue on in this state of faith. In other words, this father who is confronted with circumstances that seem sealed in their despair is met by Jesus who turns his attention back to himself and says, do not set aside your faith now, even now in the face of your worst fear. Keep on believing. And that is the challenge to Jairus' faith. Will he let the circumstances kill his trust in Jesus? Or will his faith continue to trust even in the face of death? So both Jairus and this woman are tested in their faith, but both persevere. The woman steps forward and confesses what had happened. Jairus goes with Jesus. And the question we're wondering is, was it worth it? Was their faith justified? 
And so here we want to go on and see, thirdly, the result of their faith. We've seen the need for their faith. We've seen the test of their faith. Now the result of their faith. When these two pressed through their fear and kept putting their faith in Jesus, Jesus did not disappoint. Their faith in him is justified and clarified as he meets all their need with a complete healing and redemption. Let's start by looking at the woman. Her physical healing had been complete from the moment that she touched Jesus' garments. Her decision to pursue Jesus, to worm her way through the crowd and grab hold of his garment, was met with a healing that had proved elusive for 12 years. And this was no patch job. The Greek text literally says that the very spring source or root of her flow of blood was dried up. But Jesus did not stop there. In calling the woman forward, he called her to himself. In the face of her terror, he spoke with utter kindness and love, calling her daughter. And daughter, he says, and then he directs her heart to the crux of what happened, the key point of what had happened. He says to her, your faith has made you well. And what he's doing is he's drawing her attention to the key fact. See, it was not his clothes that brought healing. It would be easy for her to say, well, you'll never believe it. I touched his garments and I was healed. His clothes have the power to heal me. And Jesus is saying, no, my power, my clothes are not some force that get dispensed. It's not like plugging a vacuum into the wall to get power. Like if I just touch Jesus' clothes, I get a miracle. Not at all. Jesus says it was your faith in me that brought healing. You see how he draws that emphasis. Your faith has made you well. And if her faith is in him, then she can not only have a one-time healing, but Jesus gives her something more. He says, go in peace. Just think of the last 12 years for this woman. It's been the opposite of peace. Pain, uncleanness, fear, trying many things only to have your hopes dashed again and again. Nowhere else to turn. But her faith in Jesus has made her well. She has met him and all his grace and kindness. And as she has put her faith in Jesus and heard him call her to himself, she finds her faith completely justified as she is healed and brought a redemption beyond even what she came to seek. And she can go in peace. Well, how about Jairus? Jairus must have been thinking, what could Jesus do now? The mourners and wailers are all around. There is a dead body on my child's bed. But whatever was running through his head, he kept going with Jesus. And contrary to all expectation, Jesus went near and took her by the hand and said, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately she stood up and began to walk around. Now, back in chapter 1, we saw Jesus heal Peter Peter's mother-in-law, and if it was incredible to see Peter's mother-in-law go from fever in bed to cooking dinner in a matter of minutes, it's even more amazing to see a body that is dead after a long illness stand up and walk around at the touch of his hand. That is Jesus' divine power. With a word, with a touch, waves stilled, demons cast out, the dead raised to life. And it meant that Jairus' pursuit of Jesus, his faith in Jesus, even when it seemed like he had failed, was fully justified in the end. 
And in both cases, as Jesus tested their faith, he did so to withdraw him to himself, but also to clarify that faith in him was the crux of their hope. Jesus, in this text, put the emphasis squarely on faith as the grace of God, the gift of God, which receives hope from the hand of Christ. Not because faith just automatically gives us what we want, but because faith brings us to Jesus, who redeems us and makes us whole. And so surely Ryle's emphasis is again correct when he said, no grace is so important to the Christian's own soul, to our own soul as faith. By faith we begin. By faith we live. By faith we stand. By faith we walk, not by sight. By faith we overcome. By faith we have peace. By faith we enter rest. It is all by faith. Christ, he says, has not changed since the day when this woman was healed or Jairus' daughter was raised. He is still gracious. He is still mighty to save. And there is but one thing needful if we want salvation. And that one thing is faith. Let a man reach out and touch Jesus and he shall be made whole. So the question for us is do we recognize how desperate our need is dead and enslaved in sin with the finality of death a guarantee, making even life's pleasures meaningless in the end. And if we realize this, will we look to Jesus in faith? In our desperate need, will we look to the one who can heal us, who can redeem us, who can save us to the uttermost and can even raise us from the grave into eternal life? I pray that each of us will look in such a faith to Jesus this morning. Well, we've seen this story. We've seen the need for faith, the test for faith, and the result of faith. But before we close, I want to notice together two applications that this text draws our attention to. The first comes in verse 36 when Jesus looks Jairus in the eye and says, Do not fear, only believe. And do you see this contrast that Jesus is making? Do you hear from him that fear and faith are like oil and water? They do not mix. When one rises, the other will fall. When the one rises to the top, the other will fade to the background. Because genuine faith sucks the energy out of fear, while fear, given the reins, runs roughshod over faith. And in every circumstance in life, especially every difficult, threatening, or uncertain circumstance in life, Jesus stands calmly looking us in the eye and telling us, do not fear, only believe. Now for some of us, that is particularly challenging. Some of us know that our heart beats and our life runs on the fuel of anxiety and worry that constantly propel us moving forward. But even if we're not worriers, all of us know this challenge because the causes of fear and anxiety face each of us. Danger. This world is broken, groaning under the curse of sin. We will face danger. We will face pain in many ways from day to day in life. Control. We are not in control. And we can look to all the five-star safety ratings and the best home security systems and the newest medical technology and, 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 and newest medications and all of this. 
will only in the end bring us to situations and events which keep reminding us and forcing us to acknowledge how little control we have. Our desires, the desires for certain things or our love for certain people. And the more things we desire and the more people we love, the greater the risk that we will not get something that we want and that we will lose someone that we love. Uncertainty. No one knows what tomorrow will bring. And that uncertainty can become a fertile playground for our imaginations to spell out all of the ways life can go badly. And you add these up, the dangers we face, our lack of control, our desires and our loves, the uncertainty, and all of this can be an avalanche that could overwhelm us. But Counselor Ed Welch said it so well, and he said this, he said, take a hard look at yourself instead of your circumstances when worry or fear is blaring. Ask yourself in this moment, what or who am I trusting in? And face the reality that we must go outside of ourselves and outside of anything in this world for an answer to our dangers, our fears, and our anxieties. We must seek the God who is in control. And when we seek Him, we find that God is not holding back. He has given us His only Son. He has poured out His Spirit and wisdom and revelation on us. He gives grace for today and grace for tomorrow and grace upon grace. He persuades us of the beauty of his kingdom and he gives us more than we could ever imagine. This is what our God does. And what a beautiful summary of faith in the face of danger and uncertainty. To look outside of ourselves, outside of our circumstances, outside of the things in this world to God and think about who this God is. To God who is sitting in absolute faithful sovereignty over every danger you could confront. A God for whom no nanosecond is outside of his control. A God who knows what we need. And a God who leaves nothing to uncertainty. And so with our eyes on him, hear his voice say to us, Do not fear, only keep on believing in me. This is the first application of our text this morning. Fix our eyes on such a God. Do not fear, but keep believing. Well, the second application comes a few verses later. When Jairus, despite Jesus' words of comfort, arrives home to grief and death, wailing and mourning fills the house. His 12-year-old girl has died. But do you notice how Jesus responds? Do you notice that Jesus seems unperturbed? In fact, Jesus asks a question that sounds like the most insensitive question we could imagine. He arrives at the home and he looks around and says, Why are you making all this commotion and weeping? Who calls grief over the death of a child a commotion? Why does Jesus ask this? How could the purest heart of compassion say such a thing? Well, Jesus explains. He says the child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, the first century coroners and official mourners knew a dead body when they saw one. There should be no confusion here. They don't miss a beating heart or a light breath. This child has departed life. And yet Jesus calls death sleeping. 
Jesus did the same thing for Lazarus. Even though Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, he told his disciples, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, and I go to wake him up. Now, the ancient world commonly saw a resemblance between sleep and death. But the ancient world did not commonly call death sleep. In fact, I know of nowhere where the dead are so constantly referred to as being asleep as in the New Testament. And it seems that Jesus' vocabulary and language here catches on. We find it in Acts regarding Stephen. We find it in 1 Corinthians. We find it in 1 Thessalonians. We find it again and again that death is referred to as sleep. And it appears that just, just as for us, the advent of social media has given us an entirely new vocabulary to talk about our social interactions. You know, we now have FOMO and trolls and haters and hashtags and tweets and stories and posts and all these words that we didn't have that now describe our social interactions. Well, in the same way, the advent of the Son of God into this world has changed the way Christians talk about death. It has changed our vocabulary so that it now can be called falling asleep. And why? Because it comes with a solid promise of being awakened in the morning. Awakened on that final morning when our Savior comes. And so it is to quote Ryle one more time in words that have been so comforting to me in recent days. He says, let us beware of sorrowing like those who have no hope over friends and loved ones who fall asleep in Christ. The youngest and loveliest believer can never die before the right time. But let us look forward. There is a glorious resurrection morning yet to come. And our Savior will say to each one of his people, little son, little daughter, I say to you, arise, wake up, you are with me. See, death is not an end. It is a falling asleep with the guarantee of waking up with our Savior. And that is comfort and hope through Jesus Christ. And we find it in our passage this morning. Well, we come to an end today. Irvin Yalom, that professional psychologist of Stanford, said that all of life is defined by the fear of death. All of life is meaningless because of the inevitability of death. But Jesus has arrived as the one with power, not just over nature, not just over the supernatural, but with power over death itself to give us eternal and life-changing hope. And the gift of grace that receives such hope is faith, faith that is so needed, faith that is often tested, but faith that is always justified. Because faith that is given by God's grace is a faith that trusts completely in the one who can bear every trust that is put upon him. And he always delivers. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who rules in majesty and power over nature and over the supernatural and over death itself. And Father, how we thank you for the hope that comes when a word from you, a touch from you, overcomes even death. Father, how I pray that we would see what you emphasized in this text, that faith is the crux of our hope. 
May we come to you in faith, this desperate cry to you as the only one who can rescue us and redeem us. And may we fix our faith in you. May we not fear, may we only believe, knowing that we have in you the Savior who cannot fail, a Father from whom no one can snatch us from his hands, and a guarantee of your promises of eternal life. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.